You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We are going to first look to Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 17, which start on page 797 of your Pew Bible. And as always, you can take one of these home if you do not have a Bible of your own. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, also because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. The word of the Lord. Would you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Our gospel lesson comes from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. You can find it on page 826 of your Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very, very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, today we begin the journey of Holy Week. Now, what we're taking up together is an ancient practice where followers of Jesus, both around the world and throughout history, retrace the final week of Jesus's earthly life from his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday, that's today, to the washing of the disciples' feet and the institution of the Lord's Supper on Monday, Thursday, not Monday, Thursday, Maundy, Thursday, which is uh, Thursday of this week, to his crucifixion on Good Friday, all leading to the glorious resurrection on Easter Sunday. Now, Before we get into things today, let's pause together. Let's ask that the Lord help us to begin this Holy Week well with one another. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that as as we have arrived at Palm Sunday, at the beginning of this most important week of the year, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be present to you and to each other. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Uh, about a week ago, I was on a men's retreat with a number of you as we stepped away for about 24 hours to be together, to sing, to pray, to learn, to listen, to drink beer, to just kind of spend some time with one another. And, and I found myself uh, on this retreat with some of you around a table. And as we shared a meal together, um, the, the conversation turned nostalgic. It turned to all these things that we miss from when a time when we were, we were younger men. And, uh, and of course, as so often does when a bunch of middle-aged white men get together, we start talking about high school sports and the glory days and how those days are long behind us. <laughs> and one of the things that came up in that conversation was how much all of us just miss being on a team. Like having some sort of like a coach and a team and comrades and teammates and a sense of being a part of, of something bigger some sort of cause, some sort of mission, some sort of thing that was bringing us up into it. And we were laughing about how um, there's nothing really in life right now when you're a little bit older and you're out of school to to kind of replace that. You can try to make like adult league rec sports that thing. It does not work. It just makes you weird. Then you're that guy on the field who's way too intense, right? Everybody else is telling you to calm down. Or you can try to make your job that thing, right? Like you can go about your job with this like intense competition, like it's us against the world. And like, that's going to make you a nightmare to work with, right? So don't do that. So you can try to, there's nothing else. You can't, you can't kind of replace it. And so we were all just kind of pining for the days of high school when we all used to be athletes and be on a team. And one of the things that, that other things that came up in that conversation was just this sense that we're kind of all made to be a part of something bigger. Like we're made to give ourselves to something or, or perhaps even to someone. 
And whether it's a team or maybe cheering for a team, uh, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's, maybe it's some sort of like justice issue that you've taken up. And this cause now is the, the great motivation in your life. And you think about it and you post about it and you talk about it and you just have given yourself to maybe one particular cause. Or maybe it's romance. Maybe it's, it's someone, not something that you've given yourself, mind, body, and, and soul to. I, uh, I was re-listening to... Um, uh, some old songs that I haven't heard in a while. And, and this old song came up on the playlist that was really popular back when I was a lot younger. Um, and it's a country song by Keith Urban uh, called Love Somebody Like You. And in true country song fashion, the main like point of the song is, I'm ready to love. Could be anybody. You're nearby. <laughs> I'll love you. And, uh, and, and there's like, it's funny, but there's some, there's some profound wisdom to that, which is, I mean, I don't think Keith Urban is much of a philosopher, but what if he was, what is he saying? He's saying, I, I'm, made to, I'm made to give myself to someone and you're, you're kind of the, the first one that's, that's nearby, so I'm gonna give myself to you, which is very different from the way we sing today. I mean, Miley Cyrus, when she sings like, I can love me better than you, what is she saying, right? She's saying like, you know what the one thing I'm not gonna do? I'm not gonna give myself to anybody. And we can kind of listen with, to that with a little bit of a smile and go, okay, Miley, I'm sure you'll be dating somebody soon. It's okay. Um, you know, or maybe it's politics. Maybe, maybe like you are one of those people who gets swept up in political activism. And listen, so often the thing that sweeps us up into the, like the political fervor of our moment is not so much the, the, like the particular issues of one side or another, but rather the sense of being a part of a team, being part of a tribe, like having a people and giving yourself to them and to that thing. You know, it's interesting. The story of the Bible recognizes that sense, that longing that we have inside of us to give ourselves to someone or something. And, and contrary to popular belief, the Bible doesn't shame that in you. The Bible actually dignifies that in you. Here's the story of the Bible. Uh, the Bible begins with God bestowing his image on humanity and inviting them to find their life in only him. God says to human beings in the very first chapters, essentially, of the Bible, I'm, I'm all in on you. Are, are you all in on me? And in what Christians call the fall into sin, as the story of the Bible plays out, there is, there is a, a human rejection of being all in on God. There's actually a usurping of God's kingship, and God pursues and invites his people very graciously to return to participating in his rule and reign. And he does that through the story of the Bible, primarily in the Old Testament and the story of Israel. But Israel doesn't want to be just all in on God they kind of want to be a little more all in on themselves. And so they see the neighboring tribes and, and nations around them and they all have human kings. And so Israel says to God, we, we want to be like that. We want a human king here. And God says, that's not a good idea. And they say, but we want it. And God, this is really one of those really interesting parts of the story of the Bible where God is so gentle and gracious, like a parent that knows their kid is asking for something that's not good for them and yet knows the only way for the kid to learn that thing is to just go ahead and have it and just see how it plays out. So God says, okay, let's give that a shot. You want a human king, here we go. And so Israel gets a human king. Does it go well? It does not. Saul, David, Solomon, and then everything kind of falls apart. And Jesus comes into the story of the Bible as the convergence of God's desires to be king for his people and human desires to have a human king. Jesus lies at the intersection of those two desires. 
Jesus, the God human who invites all the world into the kingdom of God. And the story of the Bible ends with one day the reign of God being consummated, the rebellion being put down and peace and justice of God reigning forever and ever and ever. And into that grand story of being all in on God or not, of who will be king of God's people, will it be a human, will it be God, who's it going to be? You have this text, Matthew chapter 21, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, And there's a lot happening here. Let me just pan out the camera for a moment and give a little bit of historical context. What is happening when Jesus gets on a donkey and rides into Jerusalem? Is this just kind of a cute moment? I mean, like, this is, you'll notice, there are certain stories in the Bible that always end up in children's ministry curriculum, and they're always ones with animals or visuals, right? This one has both. We have palm branches and we have a donkey. That makes it a kid's story, right? It is not a kid's story, and here's why. 150 years prior to Jesus riding into Jerusalem, there's another man named Judas Maccabeus who led the Jewish people in war against the Seleucid Empire, and they won. And after their victory, the crowd celebrated their return to Jerusalem. How? By waving palm branches and celebrating, welcoming the returning king, victorious in battle. Judas Maccabeus was known as the Hammer, I would like to be known as the hammer. No one has ever given me that nickname. Still hoping. There's still time. So Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, he actually changes the currency of the Jewish people in this time, and he stamps the symbol of a palm branch onto the coins to remind God's people, we defeat our enemies. So when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the crowds are waving palm branches, is it cute? It is not cute. They are ready for Jesus to become their king and lead them to victory over the Romans and restore the glory of Israel. And of course, Jesus is going to do all of those things. He is going to lead them in victory over the Romans and he is going to restore the glory of Israel. He's just not going to do it the way they expect. Now, as we talk about what this might mean for us, for our purposes today, I'd like to examine the reality that just as Jesus entered Jerusalem as a kind of king, So Jesus comes to us today with the invitation to relate to him as king. And as soon as that invitation comes to us, the invitation to relate to Jesus as king, all of us tend to go one of two very different ways. There's like a fork in the road that we tend to split on. And here are the two different ways we go, or you might think of it as the two different kinds of people in relation to Jesus as king. First is the kind of people who want the king without the kingdom. And then, conversely, the kind of people who want the kingdom without the king. Now, um, we're not just playing with words. This is real. Let's talk about it. Well, first, wanting the king without the kingdom. This is the kind of person who looks forward to Palm Sunday. You were anticipating this. It was on your calendar. Maybe you're one of those people like, uh, like our family where you've got the big whiteboard calendar in your kitchen and this day has like some little green palm branches drawn on it. Like, yes, Palm Sunday, looking forward to this ready to embrace Jesus as King, as Savior, as Lord, ready to shout Hosanna, ready to sing and worship, ready to pray. But when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom and what it's like, we kind of lose interest a little bit. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he has something to say about what his kingdom is like. Did you notice that our Old Testament lesson that Lane read from Zechariah chapter 9 and our New Testament gospel lesson that Lewis read from Matthew 21 go together? Did you hear the language? Jesus is, the, the author of, of this section is, is quoting Zechariah chapter 9 in relation to what Jesus is doing. It goes like this, say to the daughters of Zion. 
Now that is a text, that is a phrase that all Jewish people in the first century would know by heart. This is a cultural reference point for everyone in the crowd listening. It would be like this. It'd be like one of you going up on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the mall in Washington, D.C. and shouting out, I have a dream. Is that a cultural reference point? It is. You know what that person is doing. You know what they're referencing. That's what Jesus is doing right here. Say to the daughters of Zion. This is something everyone, everyone's ears perk up. They know what he's talking about. What are, who are the daughters of Zion? This is a euphemism. This is a Jewish euphemism for Jerusalem, for the city, the very city that Jesus is entering. And what state is Jerusalem in at this point? It is occupied territory. It's oppressed, it's subjugated, it's disputed, it's embattled territory. Jerusalem is not a peaceful or whole or just or thriving or flourishing place at this time in history. Jerusalem is struggling. Now, that text from Zechariah chapter 9 goes on to say in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, which means this text is, it's, it's, like, it's like words of defense. God's saying to his people, I'm going to protect you. People that are coming against you in war, I'm going to block them. I'm not going to let them through. I'm going to protect you. And then the voice of God in Zechariah chapter 9 goes on to say, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. It's a message of, of, of liberation, not just defense, but also liberation. I'm coming to set you free. And then in verse 12, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Prisoners of hope. That could mean two different things, couldn't it? It could be prisoners who have hope, right? Prisoners who are waiting to be released, waiting to be set free, waiting to be liberated, and they are hoping for it. It could also mean prisoners who are constrained by the bonds of hope, meaning that they might be tempted to give in to depression and despair and hopelessness, but hope constrains them. They can't give in to it. The point is Jesus is entering Jerusalem, not only with this spiritual claim to divine kingship, but also, listen, with a material claim to earthly renewal. Let me say it again. Jesus is entering Jerusalem, not only with a spiritual claim to divine kingship, but a material claim to earthly renewal. Now, the problem is that the king without the kingdom person reads this text or hears this story, celebrates Jesus, loves being a Christian, but all this political, social activism language that Jesus is alluding to makes them a little bit nervous. Now, the pushback would go something like this. If you're sitting there thinking, okay, I feel you, like that's a little bit me right now. Social activism coming from the pulpit this morning. I don't know about that. Here's, here's the normal pushback. It goes something like this. Oh, those silly first century people. They thought Jesus was a military leader who was coming to set them free from Rome. But really, he just came to set them free from sin. They wanted physical freedom, but he came to give them something even better, spiritual freedom. Right? You ever heard that on Palm Sunday? It is not true. If that's what Jesus is doing... Why are we talking about Zechariah chapter 9? Why is the author, why is Jesus drawing our attention to these ancient words of liberation and of renewal and of freedom from oppression as he is entering Jerusalem? Listen, the gospel is every bit as much about the physical, material renewal of all things, political, politically, culturally, socially, financially, relationally, as it is spiritually. And so the first kind of person is ready to welcome Jesus as spiritual king, but not ready to participate in the material kingdom. Make sense? Ready for Matthew 21, not ready for Zechariah 9. Okay? Now, that's just half the room. That's one kind of person. Then there's the other kind of person, right? Kind of the other side of the coin. Wanting the kingdom without the king. 
We are living, y'all, we are living in this remarkable time in history. And there are some people who would call it a, a, a troubling time or a challenging time, and, and those words are accurate. But it is also a remarkable time. It's a very interesting time to be alive. There are, there are many scholars who would call the culture we're living in a post-Christian culture, meaning that uh, our society has largely kind of tried on some aspects of the Christian faith, decided they didn't want them, and discarded them like old clothes. The thing is, though, some of those aspects of the Christian faith linger on in society and in culture. They just are no longer known as things that are affiliated with Jesus or the Christian church. Mark Sayers, uh, Australian uh, pastor and theologian, has written a book called Disappearing Church in which he has this great little one-line definition of post-Christian culture, which he calls simply, we want the kingdom without the king. And what he means is that our society doesn't realize the philosophical underpinnings of many of our deepest held beliefs and desires are actually these holdovers or hangovers from the Christian faith. Things that all of us would agree on, no matter, no matter who you are or what your posture is towards Jesus or church, all of us would agree with things like human dignity, right? All human beings deserve to be treated with dignity. Equality of men and women, equally valued, Racial equity, peace instead of war, access to health care for everyone, protection of children from active shooters, right? We're on the same page there. Limited, not totalitarian government. These are all goods, collective goods, that have been brought to our consciousness through history from the church, from Jesus. But because we live in a post-Christian society, the doctrines of the church of Jesus have dropped out. The doctrines have dropped out. But the values of the church of Jesus remain values, at least in part, at least in some way. So what we have is a society that seeks to implement things like dignity and equity and peace and prosperity and health and protection, but seek to implement these things as goods unto themselves without anything beneath them to undergird them or anything above them to rule them. Make sense so far? Now, this kind of person who leans in this direction says, yes, absolutely, I'm with you. We want, we want dignity and equity and prosperity and health and well-being and all these things. We can just have them without Jesus, right? You want the good news to the daughters of Zion. You want to seek this renewed city that Jesus is talking about. But you don't need Jesus on a donkey to get it. You're ready for Zechariah chapter 9, but not ready for Matthew 21. As a friend, a neighbor of mine likes to say, the kingdom of heaven is not a movement. (laughs) Movements are governed by the will of the people. Kingdoms are governed by the will of the king. So the second kind of person wants kingdom of God kind of things to happen, but wants it to be more of a movement of the people, not the inauguration of a kingdom. Now, as I'm describing these two different kinds of people in the room, everybody's a little uncomfortable. So let's step back for a moment, take a breath, and just kind of pan out for a second and reflect together. What is similar between these two different kinds of people, between all of these folks, all of us in the room? The king without the kingdom and the kingdom without the king. Well, one similarity between these two is, is a general unwillingness to surrender control. The king without the kingdom person is enamored with the idea of Jesus as king, as long as his kingdom aligns with their kind of political and cultural preferences, right? Like, I want Jesus as king, but I'd like to kind of keep my own kingdom kind of stuff, right? And then the second kind of person, the kingdom without the king person, is enamored with the social and cultural renewal that the Christian faith talks about, but is unwilling to give up control to Jesus because his kingdom might include some other kinds of things, some other kinds of renewal that they might not so much want. 
So what's the problem? What stands between us and accepting Christ as king? What's the speed bump that we have to get over or the bridge we have to cross? Well, it's the same thing, actually, no matter who you are, no matter which side you tend to lean towards. The speed bump we have to get over is ourselves. Flannery O'Connor writes really well about this, where she talks about her inability to see God or to see what God is doing. And she talks about it in terms of a solar eclipse. So a solar eclipse is where the moon passes between the earth and the sun and blocks out the sun, right? You can't see the sun anymore because the moon is in the way. Flannery O'Connor writes that this is kind of what happens with her and God. She's like, I can't see God. I have eclipsed him with myself. (laughs) All I can see is me. I can't see his kingdom because all I can see is my own kingdom. I can't see his desires because all I can see are my own desires. I don't know, she writes, quote, I don't know you, God, because I am in the way. Now, we need to do a little bit more unpacking here because you might be thinking up until this point, like, okay, Dan, these are some nice, like, theological acrobatics, but let's go back to that original idea. Like, why can't you have Jesus without kind of the social, cultural stuff? And, and, and why can't you have some social and cultural stuff without, without Jesus? Why, why does that not work other than you just say so? Well, let's think about it together. Why, doesn't the, why does the king without the kingdom not work? Well, because a king that you ignore or a king whose orders you reject is no king at all. Listen to some of the ways that Jesus talks about this with his disciples. He says to them, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you can use my name all you want. You can drop my name all day long. But unless you are actually obeying me, I don't know you. And you don't know me. You're not a part of me. Jesus goes on to say, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, very famously, some of you know this verse, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. What is Jesus saying? He's saying on one hand, if you are dropping my name all the time, but you're not obeying me, then you don't know me. On the other hand, he's saying, here's what obedience looks like. It's caring for the poor and the sick and the helpless and the oppressed and the prisoner. It's all of these people. It's the daughters of Zion who need help, who need good news. Jesus is saying, unless you're doing that, which is obedience, then I'm not really your king. Why does the king without the kingdom not work? Because a king that you ignore or a king whose orders you reject is no king at all. Now, conversely, why does the kingdom without the king work? Why does it not work? Well, I'll tell you why it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me because I'm sure you don't struggle with this. I tend to overestimate my own virtue. Do you overestimate your own virtue? In order to create a society of justice and peace and love and harmony and equity and dignity and prosperity, you know what you have to do? You have to first be a person of justice, peace, love, harmony, equity, dignity, and prosperity. The reality is, 
I'm not there. And I suspect that you are probably not there either. You might be further along than me, but I don't think you're there either. Nobody is. You and I are trying to lead people places we've never been. Can you do that? You cannot. Impatient parents can't raise patient kids. Greedy presidents can't foster generous republics. Doesn't work. You can't create something healthier than you are. And furthermore, how are you going to deal with all of the corruption and abuses of power that are already happening in the world? You know what you're going to have to do? The best you're going to be able to do is use whatever power you have to overturn or overthrow whatever power currently exists. Like you make peace by waging war, right? Is that peace going to last? It is not. Why? Because it was achieved through war. If you create prosperity by stealing from the wealthy, that prosperity is not going to last because it didn't come from generosity. If you seek to elevate the dignity of one group of people by shaming another group of people, can you truly claim to have labored for dignity? No. You need a king. And the only kind of king that's going to work is Jesus. Listen, here's why. Jesus comes to us, and how does he come? Humble, on a donkey. He comes to us virtuous, already containing within himself all of the goodness that we are already searching for. All that whole list I said earlier, honesty, love, acceptance, grace, forgiveness, peace, justice, dignity. And he doesn't come to overthrow power with power. He's there to give up power, to surrender to the powers of the world and in surrendering to undermine and overthrow them. Jesus comes, say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. And Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. Disputed territory, where empires of the age are already at war. And he comes to be king or he comes to be nothing. That's the invitation of Palm Sunday. King or nothing. Crown me or kill me. You know what we do? Well, we tend to do what the, what the people in this time did, which is that faced with that choice, crown me or kill me. King or nothing. We go with Nothing. Jesus became nothing. Jesus voluntarily becomes nothing. And Jesus says to us on Palm Sunday, I offered myself as king and I invited you into my kingdom and you killed me and you went with nothing and I became nothing for you, but I'm back and I've risen and I've overcome death and hell and Satan and evil and I've ransomed you back from the kingdom of this world. Now, now will you crown me? Will I still be nothing to you? I have given everything for you. Now will you give everything for me? The point is, no matter what kind of person you are, the king without the kingdom or the kingdom without the king, what you most need is to get out of your own way, to stop eclipsing Jesus and God with yourself and embrace Jesus as your one true king and everything that goes along with him and his kingdom. You long to see society renewed? Great. But it's not going to happen apart from the kingship of Jesus. You long for Jesus to be praised and worshiped by all. You want to see the whole world convert. Great. But it's not going to happen apart from laboring for his kingdom in the here and now. Now, let's end this way. Let's end by just contemplating together for a few minutes. What if you actually responded to this? What if Jesus came to you and said, king or nothing, and you went with king? What if you went with, what what would that look like? Well, listen, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem, and one day Jesus is going to enter a new city, a new Jerusalem, the new creation, and there he will reign as king forever and ever and ever. And those who follow him, who trust him, who have embraced him as king in this life will reign with him, under him, as his subjects, as citizens of that new city, of that new Jerusalem, as daughters of Zion. 
And what does it look like for Jesus to be king of your life right now? Listen, first, there is a wonderful word of comfort here. It means receiving King Jesus as a comfort and not as a threat. In just a moment, Lando and his team are going to lead us in singing, how long, how long till the daughters of Zion will rejoice. And there's this sense that when King Jesus comes to us, you know what it means? It means right up front, an end to suffering, an end to oppression, an end to loneliness and pain and estrangement and poverty and sickness and suffering. To all of the people in that first century context who actually saw with their eyes Jesus ride in on a donkey and who heard those words say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Did Jesus make good on that promise? Absolutely. It just didn't come the way they expected. They thought it was going to come with a tank. Instead, it came with a cross. Now, if it looks like receiving this as comfort, it also looks like living as a citizen of the new Jerusalem beginning now, starting now. And what is that new Jerusalem like? What is the kingdom of Jesus like? Well, that's actually not as complicated as it sounds. Kingdoms bear the characteristics of their king. The peace that Jesus achieved was not achieved through war. Not, but through, uh, but through absorbing the attacks of his enemies. So if you're going to be a citizen of the kingdom right now, what does that mean? Well, it means that citizens of the kingdom now become people who bring peace, not by defeating their enemies, but by absorbing their enemies' attacks and not retaliating. The dignity of Jesus was not established by shaming the wicked, but by allowing himself to be shamed. And so citizens of the kingdom become people who now do not shame, but rather allow themselves to be shamed in order to preserve and protect the dignity of other people. The justice of Jesus was not giving people what they fairly deserved, but by taking on himself the very thing they fairly deserved in order to give them the grace they didn't deserve. So what does that mean for citizens? It means citizens of the kingdom now become people who seek justice, not by dealing out fairness, but by taking on the responsibility for the debts of society in order to extend grace. Jesus will be king to you, or he will be nothing to you. The prosperity of Jesus was not brought about through coercion or manipulation or force, but by invitation and by his own generosity. So citizens of the kingdom become people who seek the prosperity of their neighbors and city, not by force of law, but by generosity of spirit. Jesus will be king to you, or he will be nothing to you. And in order for him to be king for you, you must embrace both him and his kingdom. You can't have one without the other. And to begin to live as citizens of that kingdom now, here and now. That's the invitation of Palm Sunday. Friends, church family, we are all made to give ourselves to someone or something. And the question of Palm Sunday is, will you give yourself to King Jesus? Will he be king to you or he'll be nothing to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that on this day in history, Your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, rode into Jerusalem to be crowned king. And we pray that, Lord, today you would enter our hearts and there be crowned king so that we might not only worship you, but also participate in your kingdom in the here and now. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.